Our scripture reading this night comes from Hosea chapter 1 as we began last week looking at this prophet, the prophet of Hosea. Today we will read the entirety of chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 if you'll give your fearful and reverential attention to the reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For just a little while, I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I'll have mercy on the house of Judah, and I'll save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Amen. Thus far the reading God's holy word, you may be seated. Have you ever thought of what it is that you would or would not endure in marriage? Hopefully that's not something you've thought too much of, but the question tonight is, how far would you be willing to go and still remain married? What would be your breaking point? What would be the place where you would say, this is too much. I cannot handle or allow this to go on anymore. Very recently I heard the sad story of a man who was employed at a church. It was a church, uh, sadly in our denomination, who pled guilty to 47 counts of all sorts of sexual deviances while being on the ministerial team of this church while being married and having a family in the local newspaper wrote an article and the article began this way so and so it mentions their name lived two lives on the one a masterful musician for a church and a proud respected father raising his young family with a wife of six years On the other, 
The 37-year-old man spent many years, and then it goes on, telling about the things that he pled guilty to. And this man was sentenced to 11 years in prison, 11 years of probation. But the end of the article caught my eye. It mentioned his wife, and in there it mentioned that she had chosen to remain with her husband. Not only through this time of this court case and even him pleading guilty to it, but even now as he enters into jail. And she was quoted in this article saying, I don't want to see my child grow up without a father. There is a range of emotions in an article such as that. The question is, would you do the same if you were that wife? It's hard to say, isn't it? Unless you are in a situation like it. Well, let's say this man was released after 11 years and his wife was faithful to him during those entire time that he was in jail. And what if after those 11 years, he went back to doing that which brought him to jail in the first place? I think all of us would say, okay, that goes too far. I gave a chance, I was patient, but obviously the situation has not changed. They have abused my love, they have abused my patience, it's time for me to leave. That would be our response, wouldn't it? I say all of that because that is exactly the situation that Hosea finds himself in this book He is married to an unfaithful wife. Not unfaithful once, but seemingly unfaithful again and again. And yet, Hosea remains with her. And this, as you know, is to be a picture of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to His people. Now, God does not sit passively by no as we see that this book is much a book of judgment and punishment and yet the theme throughout the entirety of this book is God's faithfulness and his love even in spite of his people's rampant sin and their rampant debauchery and so we'll see that tonight in this first chapter and three points, the wife of debauchery, children of debauchery, and finally, children of promise. First, the wife of debauchery. Weddings are happy times, are they not? Couples that love each other, that want to spend their life together, and they come to this place, the time of their wedding, and in the sight of their Family and friends are married together, and it's a joyous time, and all seems rosy and bright, but weddings, as you know, are just the beginning. It takes a lot more than a wedding to have a marriage. It takes love and loyalty and faithfulness. It takes work and dedication for a marriage to work, all of which is completely 
worth it. As that old commercial would say, it's priceless, the work that we put into our marriages. But a marriage, we would say, works only as much as both are willing and both have the same desires and work towards those same desired ends. But what we read in Hosea is not that, is it? It's that Hosea went into marriage knowing that this would not be the case for his marriage. Not on his behalf, at least. No, he was going to remain faithful and loyal, and yet his wife would not. And he knew this before he even married her. And the question would be, why would he do such a thing like this? Well, it's because the Lord told him to. We see that in verse 2, do we not? Go take yourself a wife of whoredom. And it would be absolutely foolish for Hosea to do this on his own if the Lord didn't tell him to do this. To take a spouse that was a known flanderer would be absolutely ridiculous, absolutely foolishness, but here the Lord tells him to do just that. And that woman, that philanderer, we know her as Gomer. And Gomer, by all indications, was a prostitute. Some commentators wrestle with if she was already a prostitute when Hosea married her, or if she became a prostitute after. My thinking is, does it really matter? Is either way better or worse? Either way, Hosea knows this about her before marrying her and still must marry her. But the question still remains, why? Why would God command Hosea, this prophet, this man of God, this man that was to be the voice of God, to enter into such a marriage like this, a marriage that many would say was just a sham of a marriage. It wasn't a real marriage at all because it was violated either before entering and surely after. Well, we see that the prophets oftentimes were called to very difficult tasks. I don't know when the last time you read through the prophets, but you'll find that you'll be much more thankful for what God calls you to compared to what he called some of the prophets to. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for 390 days to represent the 390 years that Israel would be punished Isaiah had to walk around partially naked for over three years. And here we see Hosea was called to marry a prostitute. Like I said, we can be thankful for what God calls us to do because it could be far worse. But again, why? Why Hosea? Why this marriage to such a woman as this? Well, it was to be a living example. It was to be a stark picture a jarring picture even of what was or would be taking place. 
in the land. In a sense, the people had closed up their ears. They had stopped listening to the word of God, even though God sent his prophets, even though God had sent his word. It wasn't because there was a lack of word. No, it was because there was a lack of hearing. And so God instead sends a man and says if they will not hear, then they will at least see. And they will not be able to ignore this visual sermon that is taking place. And that is what they had with Hosea's marriage and even with his children. But why use this marriage or why use the example of marriage? Well, marriage is a picture of a covenant relationship, is it not? In fact, when I'm teaching the new members class here at Smyrna Church and we're talking about the covenants, I give them the definition of what I believe a covenant to be with this. A covenant is a relational bond between two or more persons with stipulations that govern it. A very basic definition. And I ask, is there any examples of that type of relationship today that we can see? Type of relationships that we enter into or, 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 or partnerships or, or types of uh, relationships with our neighbors or our co-workers and several will give well we have HOA covenants and we have employee employer handbooks and we have church membership vows which is like a covenant and like I said some will give those but without fail everyone will mention marriage and that is absolutely right marriage is the greatest example of a covenant relationship because it has both aspects of a covenant. It has relationship, the the closest human relationship that one can have, and marriage also has stipulations. Stipulations such as love and faithfulness and loyalty. And that is why I believe God has given us marriage, is it not? It's an earthly representation of God's relationship with us that God has entered into a covenant with us and the New Testament bears this out in Ephesians chapter 5 that Paul says there is the same parallel between husbands and wives and and Christ and the church God's relationship with mankind it is pictured in the picture of marriage and so we should not be surprised that God is using an earthly metaphor, that of marriage, to demonstrate a greater spiritual principle, that of covenants. God has entered into a covenant, a marriage, if you would, with his people. But here we see that it's not a picture of a good marriage, is it? But really a a very sad marriage, a very poor marriage. And yet, as we think about God's covenant with mankind, we should recognize that it's not altogether unlike the marriage between Hosea and Gomer. In what way, you might ask? Well, 
these two parties are not equal. They are not alike. We can see that with Hosea and, and, and see that with Gomer. Hosea seems to be a very reputable, honorable guy, a prophet of God. And Gomer is anything but. She is a woman of disrepute. And yet the same is true between us and God, is it not? That God is God over all. And yet we as humans are mere creatures created by God. And so why would God enter into a relationship like that? Oftentimes you might meet a couple and you've probably thought, like I've thought, well, they seem like an odd couple together. I wouldn't have paired the two of them together. And if we've ever thought that with human relationships, which we have all thought, and certainly we would think that with Jose and Gomer, that this is a very odd relationship, a very odd marriage. We wouldn't pair a prophet and a prostitute together, would we? But again, we begin to see why God would do that. Because if that is true of a prophet and a prostitute, how much more of God and man? They should not go together. And yet that is not how we think, do we? We're so used to hearing that we can enter into this relationship with God, that we can enter into this covenant with God, that it becomes almost common unexceptional, commonplace even. And yet then when we read a passage like this and we read that God calls a prophet to marry a prostitute, we think, well, that shouldn't be. Really, it should be the inverse, shouldn't it? That God entering into a relationship with man is more stark. It is more jarring than even this relationship between a prophet and a prostitute, between Hosea and Gomer. And yet we could even go further, can we not? Because not only is it a relationship between God and man, it's a relationship between a holy God and a sinful man. And again, this is pictured in our relationship with Hosea and Gomer. Admit it, it offends our sensibility a little bit. That as soon as we open the pages of Hosea, we read this, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I'm guessing that you didn't use the word whoredom this week in your common conversations, did you? That word is a little too crude. It's a little too uncouth for our common vernacular. We might use a little bit softer language like promiscuous or loose or licentious. We don't use words like whoredom and and never a word like whore. And yet we read that the word of God does exactly that. In fact, three times in one verse. And if you're reading in the Hebrew, it's actually four times 
in one verse because that last one, great whoredom, the Hebrew is hori whoredom. It repeats it twice. Gomer was a whore. There's no other way to say it than that. And yes, that offends us. Yes, that offends our sensibilities, but it should. Why? Because who is Gomer in this passage? Who does she represent? Well, she represents us. She represents mankind. And we might say, well, I don't think we should talk like that. Or we might try to appease ourselves and say, yeah, but, you know, she was representing Israel and Israel was doing terrible and horrible things. And, well, I don't always do everything perfectly right. I'm not doing at least that. And that may be true. But nevertheless, every time we sin, every time we go and leave the true God and go after other gods or go after other desires. That is spiritual fornication, isn't it? We play the whore. And we really need to put our sins in those stark terms and really recognize the heinousness of our sins in the sight of a holy God. And yes, the people were not repenting of their sins. They were continuing in their whoredom. But our sins are no less heinous. And we should recognize them as such and thus turn from them. And turn to the living God. Turn in confession and faith and repentance. And not continue on once we recognize the true nature of our sins. And what it's like in this covenant relationship, this covenant marriage that we have with God. Because Hosea's marriage with Gomer is a picture of man's covenant relationship with God. We are the wife of debauchery. Well, second then, not only do we see the wife of debauchery, but we see children of debauchery. Not only was Hosea's marriage to be a picture, so were his children. Hosea had three children, two sons and a daughter, a daughter being in the middle of the two sons. And I say three children because the text seems to indicate that only the first was actually Hosea's child. The second two seemed to be not. They were conceived in her unfaithfulness, in her whoredom even. And what is even perhaps more shocking than that is their names. What does the Lord tell Hosea to name them? Well, the first is Jezreel. We see that there in verse 4. And this might need some explaining, but if you go to 1 Kings chapter 21, There we read of the wicked king Ahab desiring and coveting Naboth's vineyard. And he wants it, but Naboth will not sell it to him, even though he is the king, because this is the family inheritance. 
And so Ahab goes back, and you remember the story, he cries and whines upon his bed like a four-year-old. And Ahab's wicked wife, Jezebel, comes in and says, aren't you the king? I thought you were the king. If you want this vineyard, then go and take it. And so Ahab and Jezebel kill Nabal, take his vineyard. And because of this heinous sin, the sin in the sight of God, Ahab and his house are judged. And that judgment comes through the hands of Jehu. And Jehu slaughters the house of Ahab in the valley of Jezreel. And it was a great slaughter. It says that Ahab had 70 sons. It says that them along with their house, all the great men, his close friends, and all his priests were killed. In other words, anyone that was associated with Ahab or Jezebel was cut down. And there we read that so great was this judgment, that this judgment was of epic proportions, that there was bodies that were piled up. It was a horrific scene. And as a result, Jehu and then his seed become the kings of Israel instead of Ahab and his children. And even as Hosea comes, it says there in verse 1 that Jeroboam was the king of Israel. Jeroboam II was in the line of Jehu. And God tells Hosea to call his son, Hosea's son, Jezreel. In other words, synonymous with bloodshed. It'd be like calling your son Armageddon or a modern terms Auschwitz. Why? Because the same thing is going to happen to the line of Jehu, the scripture says. Well, it goes on. It says that Gomer gives birth to two more children, the first being Lo-Ruhama, the second Lo-Ami. Lo-Ruhama means no mercy. Lo-Ami means not my people. Again, you might say poor children. What's her name? Oh, no mercy. What's his name? Oh, not mine. Again, you might ask why. Well, there's many different interpretations of this, but I think the best is this. Keeping in the line with that covenant thought. What was promised to Israel through the covenant? Well, we read the best definition or the crystallization of this takes place in Genesis chapter 12. God makes his covenant with Abraham. God promises three things. That they'll be a great nation, that they will have land, and that they will be a blessing. And what I believe through the mouth of Hosea, God is saying is that because you are prostituting yourself, because you are not upholding the covenants, because you're committing this harlotry, what is being produced? What is the seed of your whoredom, so to speak? 
Well, it's the opposite of what was promised to Abraham. Instead of having a great nation, God says through Hosea in verse 4, I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. But you will no longer be a nation anymore. But I'll kill your king and kill this nation. Instead of having a great land in verse 7, says, I will not save them, and I will not have mercy on them. As I will have mercy on the house of Judah, I will not have mercy on the house of Israel. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. In other words, a nation is going to come in. And we know this in 722 that the Assyrians do just that. They come in and destroy Israel and take them out of the land And so longer, they are no longer a great nation. They no longer have this great land in which to dwell in. And finally, the blessing is revoked. What is the greatest blessing of the covenant? Well, the greatest covenant blessing is that God promises to be our God and the God of our children. And what do we read in verse 9 with his youngest son being called not my people it's because God says you are not my people and I am not your God God is revoking that great covenant blessing upon his people and so no doubt the question would be Hosea why would you name your children these names And Hosea would be able to say to him, because this is what your harlotry is producing. This is the repudiation of the blessings of the covenants that were given to you through your father, Abraham. Just as these children are offspring of whoredom and are illegitimate children, so your whoredom is producing the same. Your illegitimate behavior is giving birth to this judgment that is going to come upon you. And I think we see these three themes, these three themes of these children's names throughout the book of Hosea. Well, third and finally then, we don't end in judgment, do we? But rather we see this amazing promise. This promise of another children yet to come, the children, as it says, of the living God, the children of blessing. And just when you think this chapter couldn't get any worse, we read this, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in that place where it said, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah, the children of Israel, shall be gathered together, And they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from this land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. It's like the storm clouds break, and the sun shines through here in verses 10 and 11, that despite the sin, God will not ultimately revoke his covenant. He will not revoke his faithfulness 
or the promises that he made to the fathers, that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Why? Because God is a covenant promising and a covenant keeping God. Nothing will ever get in the way of that. Not even the greatest whoring of mankind can stop the love of God. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. We see those consequences here. But God's ultimate purpose and promise will always prevail. And here we see that those three covenant promises that were given to Abraham will be fully and finally upheld. That they'll be brought in as a great nation, as numerous as it says in verse 10, as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That they shall be gathered together in one place. Not just in one land, not in just one nation, but that they shall fill the earth under one head, one king. And there we see the final covenant promise being placed upon them. Those that were considered not my people are now called the children of the living God. Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 9 saying that this is a part of God's plan and redemption in bringing the Gentiles in, bringing the nations in. That those that were not my people are now brought in and are called my people, even the children of the living God. But ultimately we see this coming true in the Lord Jesus Christ and that is where our hope lies even in the darkest days, even the darkest days of Hosea. Yes, even though they were revoking the covenant and the consequences of the forsaken covenant would fall on their head, God will not ultimately forsake his holy covenant. He will bring the fulfillment of his blessings and promises to pass. Beloved, this is what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? Despite our sin, despite our sin being no better than Gomer's prostitution and her whoredom God is faithful to his covenant and he's faithful through the Lord Jesus Christ through Christ he is gathering his people and is doing so even now those people that shall be as numerous as the sand of the sea he's calling them his children we are united under one king the Lord Jesus Christ we are the children of promise We are not illegitimate children because of the one child, because of the promised child, because of the chosen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, one glorious day, we will be gathered together in one place, no longer divided, but one. And so we see in just this first chapter how good and gracious and merciful God truly is. Though we might think of ourselves as patient and merciful and gracious, our mercy and grace doesn't even begin to compare to God's. Perhaps we would be able to endure much, perhaps even much in our own marriages, but God has and does endure so much more. Though he would have every reason to cast us off and be justifiable in doing so, he does not even though we could say he is in the very worst of marriages. For this, we can praise him. For this, we can thank him. And we can be grateful to be called his covenant children, the children of the living God, if we truly are the children 
of promise. That God is our God. And we are his people. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we see our sin in very stark terms this night. Jarring terms. Terms that make us, in many ways, very uncomfortable. But Lord, we pray that you would continue to drive that uncomfortableness into our very souls. We would never be comfortable with our sin or our transgression, our iniquity. That we'd always be finding it, rooting it out, and confessing it, and turning to you in faith and repentance once again. So that our love may abound to you, O Lord. So that we may be faithful. And Lord, we know that we are not able to be faithful if it be not through the Holy Spirit that you give to us. So Lord, we pray that you would be gracious and merciful and give us an overabundance of your Spirit, that we would walk even this day and this week and as many days as you give us in this life in faithfulness and in truth. We pray this through the atoning blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.